Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ben Fleischecker. I'm with Shields. Welcome to the third night of our virtual hunt series. We're talking Western big game hunting with Jason Phelps and Dirk Durham. Very excited for it. Currently right now, I kind of help out with all the Shields Outfitter and Shields branded products of Shields. Uh, very exciting time. We've got a lot of great things in the hopper right now. we got some new products we just released for this fall. Make sure you guys jump in the stores or jump online, take a look at some of that. But let's get to the reason why you guys are tuning in this evening. So Jason Phelps, no stranger to elk. We've got some lovely calls up here that are actually going to be given away later, along with $2,000 of additional prize packages with this. We got some great partners uh, supporting tonight. We got Sitka, Matthews, and Phelps Game Calls. We're all partnering with this uh, gift package for this evening. I mean, I don't know how you can beat that. I mean, you're pretty much ready to rock and roll. You got your camo, you got your bow, and you got your elk call. So, very excited for this evening. Uh, let's go ahead and kick it off. We got uh, Jason and Dirk, and we'll probably kick off with Jason here if you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, Jason Phelps here, the owner of Phelps Game Calls. Been uh, doing this for. 11 years and uh, we talked a little bit earlier like elk calling is uh, outside from a uh, family is is kind of what i live for um there's nothing like you know calling in a big rut crazed bull so that's mm-hmm. kind of what we live for i live here in southwest washington with my wife and uh, two young kids and uh, it, it, it's it's been an awesome uh, ride and i hope it's not close to being over so very good dirk dirk durham here um sales and marketing manager for phillips game calls i've uh, been doing that about a year now maybe well year and a half, something like that. Um, I live and breathe and elk hunting is my why. Uh, that's why I, I work. That's why I do everything in life. Um, so, um, calling elk, nothing better. If we get actually get to put a tag on one, sometimes that's even icing on the cake, but I just want to fool them. I just want to call them in and, and fool them. So, uh, my wife and I live in the Boise, Idaho area. Uh, kids are all grown up. Got a couple kids. They're all grown up out of the house. So we're empty nesters down here and just uh, living it up. Just filling your walls with taxidermy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> it's more of a wall space. <laughs> yep. Well, they got rooms, right? That they don't use. That's right. That's right. Very good. Well, what got you guys into elk hunting? I mean, obviously your location in the United States is pretty prime. But, I mean, was it from the childhood memories? I mean, TV shows, buddies? Yeah, my my start or my introduction to hunting was just a lifelong family tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I can remember, you know, elk season was, you know, it was it was kind of your uh, entry to, to manhood, so to speak. I can remember we'd, they'd always let us go deer hunting uh, as a young kid. You got to ride around with grandma and grandpa if, if dads and uncles were going to take off in the timber and, and go hunt hard. But I can remember being out there ever since I was three, four years old, you know, the, the Stanley thermos is full of coffee, you know, Alabama blaring on the radio, just kind of, that's how I was. I grew up. My, my family has a long lineage of loggers and I think I was the first one to break it. Um, but you know, four or five generations, they logged, they lived in the woods, they, you know, cut firewood, they, they just lived in the woods. And so it was kind of, I didn't have much of a choice. Like we were going to hunt, um, we were going to fill the freezers every year. And that was kind of my introduction um, to hunting, um, got to hunt with my dad a little bit, but like, I think many kids growing up with, uh, siblings, um, once my younger brother was old enough, my dad took him and I actually learned how to hunt quite a bit from one of my uncles, um, who didn't have kids my age. So, uh, my uncle Brad, you know, he, he kind of taught me to beat the brush and then just kind of on my own, not that I had mastered muzzleloader or rifle elk hunting yet. Um, I just wanted a challenge. So, um, naturally just kind of 
migrated towards archery elk hunting. And at the time I started, there was really no information out there. And so I just kind of learned by the school of hard knocks, making a lot of mistakes and uh, just absolutely fell in love with that, that uh, feeling you get when you've got a bull screaming in your face, um, you know, your arrow shaking on your rest, just that that's, that's what it's all about. And, and as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing, I love hunting mule deer. I love doing all that other stuff. There's nothing that equates to that, that bull being inside the red zone, um, you know, coming to kick your butt and, uh, so that's that's kind of how we went full circle to to being a, a you know just absolutely nuts about archery elk hunting. Very good, Dirk. Man, my uh, I have very similar beginnings. You know, we come come from a hunting family. Uh, grew up in small town North Idaho, uh, probably eight hundred people, and grew up deer hunting. Um, in fact, opening day of rifle season every year, school would shut down. And there would be no school on opening day of rifle season every year. That's how big hunting was for the community. And uh, later in life, I would talk to people and be like, yeah, so how big a buck you ever shot or whatever. And these guys or these kids would be like, what do you mean? I don't, I don't hunt. Mm-hmm. I thought there was something wrong with them. Like, I don't hunt. <laughs> weird. That guy's weird. <laughs> but uh, I fell in love with elk hunting, you know, and it was, uh, you know, Whitetail hunting was my very first love, and, and elk hunting was my second. And uh, just wanting to spend more time in the woods uh, hunting kind of turned me on to the elk hunting. And, you know, my dad, he moved to Idaho right after World War II. Um, and that's back when Idaho had probably the, arguably the best elk herd in the nation. And listen to the stories about him and my uncles hunting all the time and hunting the, the rugged backcountry. And that really turned me on. Uh, got me interested in elk hunting, and then finally I was able to to uh, pick up a bow and arrow. And my dad told me he's like, "You can't kill an elk with a bow and arrow." But uh, um, man, I I had this passion that that, that was driving me that I was going to prove him wrong. And I I'd never even heard an elk bugle before uh, my first year archery elk hunting. But I'd watched a whole bunch of old videos, Larry D. Jones and Dwight mm-hmm. Shue, and all these all the old time pioneers yep. of elk hunting, and and uh, I just kind of watched what they did, learned how to use an elk call, and then uh, went elk hunting. I kind of thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of have like an elk brain here. I'm going to act like an elk. What do elk do? They, you know, they do these different things. They kind of get mad and try to fight each other. And, and uh, that, that's, that's, that was my, my initial thoughts on how I should try to call in elk. And turns out it was, it was a pretty lucky thought because I, I use a lot of the same practices today. Of course, I've screwed up so many times and and, and learn from that. And I still pull rookie mistakes every year, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but that, that really turned me on to elk hunting and, and got me going. Very nice. So, um, what's your guys' biggest memory? And it doesn't have to be the biggest, baddest or anything. I mean, it could just be like, what's, what's one of those hunts that until the day you die, you'll never forget. Go ahead, Dirk. You can go first. So uh, I can think my, about it. My favorite elk hunting memory, uh, was 2007. And uh, I'd, I'd spent a week hunting the uh, Idaho backcountry, and I just got my butt kicked. Uh, had had some bulls come in and too much brush in the way, got winded, whatever. I mean, just got my butt kicked. And I had one more weekend to go out, and my son Austin was, was a, almost a turn 10. So the day before his birthday, we went out. It was a Saturday. And I'm like, well, I'll, I'll take him to the mountains. We'll take our dirt bikes, and we'll ride around and hunt some elk a little bit and try to have a a fun day for him if anything 
I had pretty low expectations of having a, a successful hunt. It was gonna, just going to be successful for, you know, Father, having son, a good time son. with my yeah. son, right? And uh, so turns out the weather was perfect. You know, it's kind of wet and drizzly. And we heard 13 different bulls bugle that day. Uh, it, was, it was an amazing day of elk hunting. And I, I called in the, 13, the 13th bull, Lucky 13, and, and shot it with my son right, right at my feet. And uh, earlier in the day, he told me, he's like, Dad, if you, if you kill an elk, I'll help you drag it out. I'm like, son, we're not dragging an elk anymore. We have to cut it up into little pieces. Yep. He didn't have any idea. He'd seen dead deer before I'd brought home, but yep. he'd never seen elk whole on, on the ground. Yeah. So I shot this bull right, right before dark, and he looks at it, and he's like, Dad, we're not dragging this thing anywhere. <laughs> so that's, that's probably my favorite favorite elk hunting day in the world so that's great yeah i've got i've got a lot of them you know my biggest bull was cool because my family got to help come out and retrieve it and, and pack it out and stuff but i would probably say my favorite experience was my wife's first bull um wasn't even my own hunt uh we got to hunt with my good buddy charlie um for four days and he had to go home and and my wife was down in kind of the dumps we always talk about the highs and lows of elk hunting and just how mm-hmm. you know it only takes one it takes one second for the whole hunt to change and she was kind of in the dumps she doesn't she loves hunting, but she doesn't necessarily like to hunt like we do up in the mountains, you know, on your backpack, um, packing in. So I had to kind of change my mentality on how we were going to get this done and, and think of some other ways. And she was kind of down in the dumps um, and we had hiked out a trail and she just flat out asked me, she's like, what do I got to do to kill a bull? And uh, we were kind of in that position. I said, well, I think we need to go back into this area. And so she had kind of had high hopes and it was it was nice. It was just me and her. And we hiked into an area and we started to hear this bull bugle. Um, we got to listen to it for two to 300 bugles, probably just sit and just kind of take it all in. Like we were in no rush. Um, usually when I hear a bull beagle, it's, it's all hand, you know, we're, we're flying around trying to make things happen. And we had a gun, we had the wind right. And so it's like, let's just, let's just sit still. And it was just kind of nice to sit there and kind of every time you'd hear a bugle, like look over at her and smile. Cause you'd see the big grin on her face. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny. My wife, I love her to death, but she doesn't know a whole lot about elk hunting strategy. And she was questioning everything I was telling her we should do. Like we should sit and be patient and, um, it's just kind of how our relationship works. She was questioning me the whole time. Like, I think we should do this, or I think we should do that. And sure enough, we were able to wait it out. And it was kind of special that, and not that I wouldn't have wanted Charlie to be there, but for us to accomplish that and for her to kill her first, you know, really good six point bull, just us together. And then as much as she hates this part, like for us to have to hike out of just a, an absolute steep, um, Canyon, um, you know, just kind of grind it out in the dark. What it was just, it was a fun experience for me and her to be able to say, like, we did this together, um and, and to watch your first bull get killed and uh it was it was something i'll remember forever but i think every time i'm out there i know i had to pick my favorite but there's so many other memories and great memories we've made um you know whether we kill or not mm-hmm. that's fantastic yeah i mean it, it just even going back to myself I've, I've asked that question you know to a couple of the other people that we've talked to talked with this past week and i'll tell you what it's it's one of those deals that is not all about you know the biggest animal or whatever else i mean I'll never forget my first archery antelope. It is by far the smallest antelope I've ever killed, but I'll never forget it. You know, it, yeah. I wish I would have got it mounted, you know, a little eight inch buck, but it was fantastic. <laughs> you know. Yep. All right. Well, why don't we jump in? I mean, we've got loads of questions right now in front of me. So we'll start with Logan H. What are the main diaphragms for elk hunt that you don't leave home without? So what in your pocket, 
or backpack. It's a little bit different because, I mean, obviously you own a call company, so you can probably have 40 <laughs> calls with you. But you know, what are your go-to calls that you take out with you? No matter what, you'll never leave home without. So I'm going to, I'll, I'll be general um, versus getting into, I have my own pink signature. So, I, yep. I, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, advise everybody just pick that one up and go find a diaphragm that works for you. But in a general sense, I would always have a beagle tube. I would always have a diaphragm or three. Um, a good rule of thumb I like to have for myself is kind of a diaphragm for every three or four days. You may not need them all. Um, you may only need one, um, you know, depending on how durable the call is for your style. Um, but, you know, have a handful of diaphragms. And I always like to carry also like just an external cow call. Mm -hmm. And I tell people I use those 3% of the time. But the 3% of the time I've needed them, it's changed the hump for me. So why 97% of the time I, I'll use a bugle and a diaphragm or a diaphragm to cow call, um, I still always have that external call mm -hmm. um, wrapped around my neck. Um, and so that's kind of the basics. You know, everybody, I feel like a used car salesman sometimes, ah, you don't, you know, you don't need this. And you don't need every diaphragm we make. You don't need all the, it's it's truly just a tube, three diaphragms and and a wood call. And I would be fully confident every year going out that that's the calls I need to to make it happen. Very good. Dirk? Man, I I don't want to sound like I'm copying Jason, but I'm uh, I'm pretty close there too. Uh, you do there's one thing you need. <laughs> I <laughs> that's a matter. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> Sorry, Jason. <laughs> it's the best call in the world. Yeah, that's <laughs> what yeah, I heard that. I heard that's the best one in the lineup. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh how did yeah. you guys get so, started calling? What got you in what got got you guys into calling? Um, I, I'd heard that you could call an elk in, you know, you could bugle an elk in. Um, and I thought that was kind of like far-fetched, you know, as mm -hmm. I, I was, I was a kid, I'm like, yeah, you can't call in an, an animal like that, but can you? So I started watching those old films and, and, uh, it really intrigued me, like learning how, how to use the diaphragm, uh, and a tube and, and practice and practice and practice all summer, uh, cause I was really wanting to, I was really wanting to get a big bull or a bull or even mm -hmm. a cow. But, uh, the first time I had a bull answer me, I was like, Oh, that's, that was, that's awesome. It was all worth all the, all the, all the effort put into it. So Tell I it. guess it was kind of a means to an end really. Yep. I can remember watching the Primo's truth videos growing up and that's kind of what around home, nobody archery hunted, nobody hunted during the rut, but you watch these Primo's Truth, you know, all the way through. And I had every one of them. I'm like, wow, this looks a lot better than trying to shoot them across the canyon or, mm -hmm. or across the clear cut or whatever. And so I can remember going to just a local hardware store and they had that Primo's Terminator back in the day. I'm like, I, I make a squeak with that. And the very first night I took it out, I had my, it was my girlfriend, which is my wife at the time, my dad and my uncle, the guys that taught me to hunt and they had never bugled elk. And I can remember we pulled up on a landing, um, and, and I let a bugle out and a bull answered down the timber and, you know, not within 10 minutes, we had him at 25 yards bugling, you know, glunking, doing all the stuff that elk do just going crazy. He brought his whole herd out into the, out into the clear cut. And then uh, I can remember my uncle, he was on the landing. We all kind of just tucked down on the landing. He got kind of nervous that that bull was way too close. And I can remember him jumping up to scare it off because he had had enough, 25 yards was, was close enough. And so I just kind of, that was the year I didn't have a bow tag. And so mm -hmm. I had planned all year long, like 365 days. I had just planned on, I'm going to get a bow. I'm going to figure out how to do this. And, and then the next year I was able to harvest my first elk with a bow. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. That's, that's kind of how I got into it. So within the diaphragm calls, I mean, I'm a big time Turkey guy, so I can understand it. The Turkey side of it, but with the elk, I mean, the shape is kind of close to it, but it's not the same. 
Can you guys go through and explain, you know, what the technical features are? Why do you have a double read, single read? What's the curve, uh, the, the width, small frame, big frame? Just kind of getting some of the dirty details of those, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'm going to put on my nerd. I'm going to put my Einstein outfit Good. on here. I mean, you can go way off into the weeds, so I'll keep it fairly technical, but then not go too deep. So on a turkey call, I use a flat frame. I don't use any of the domes, any of the plates that you see on top. Uh, I prefer a triple reed turkey call. It allows me to sound, in my opinion, um, better. I can you know get the different... Um, you know, get different things out of the call. When it comes to elk calls, um, a single read just allows you smoother pitch changes. You know, they're, they're, you're not throwing air at it like the turkey call. You're not breaking the read over every time. You're really trying to smooth operate a call and, and mm -hmm. kind of slowly bring it through the tones. And so a single read just allows us to do that a lot easier. And then we can just vary that single read thickness. So we can start very thin like our orange amp or go all the way up um, towards Dirk's Maverick, his personal call, or like the Smith signature, we can go to really, really thick latex and stretch it tighter. And we can still cover all of that stuff that guys used to use doubles and triple read elk calls for. Now, the, the plates that we use on top of them, they are used, um, they, they've got multi-functions. They center the call for one. They, they make sure that that call always lines up in the center of, of somebody's mouth. They also kick the call at a slight angle. Um, that, that plate comes out at an angle from the latex. So when you kick that call down, it, it will actually angle the latex down and makes it a lot easier for people to make contact with their, you know, their tongue, have better control. Um, the other thing that that plate does is add support to that latex um, when you get to the high note. Uh, so a lot of guys will find that that amp, it's easier to hold a high note, it's easier to transition to that high note, it's easier to transition out um, and then without going into crazy detail, when you're mass producing these things, you know, we've kind of slowly graduated from, you know, building a few of these to hundreds of thousands of these in a year. And when we went out to design this thing as a designer, I wanted to make sure that it was very easy for my builders to build a consistent call so that when somebody comes into Shields and buys 10 gray amps, that every one of those things sounds the same. Um, yep. There's no variability and we're able to, you know, keep those things consistent. Um, the other thing, me and Dirk were actually talking about this the other day. Um, we have some, you know, rejects that we just don't ship out. There's something wrong with them, but we can pick these things up. And the way that that dome operates is that latex can be completely lax, not even have any stretch to it. And the call still functions. So there's, the, we get a lot more durability out of these, um, you know, kind of our hybrid plate, that aluminum dome, than we would if it was a flat call. Once that call starts to wear, you just kind of lose your ability to hit the high tones and whatnot. So uh, that's really why for elk calling specifically, we highly prefer a single read. We can accomplish everything that we need to. Um, we used to have a double in, in the in the lineup, and we just got a lot of bad feedback. You know, there's I would say there's two or three percent of the callers liked it, and everybody else didn't like it. And so that led us to believe let's just stay with singles, keep them thick, and or keep them thick, and then we can cover kind of the full range, everything that everybody's looking for. Now, do you have um, any of those diaphragms in front of you, Jason? I do. I have I have a couple of them. Um, these are actually some prototype things I'm just working on for this year, but this is really um, our pitch black. And then um, this is actually our green amp. I just taped in blue. I was doing something a little bit different for. So you can see on that amp, we have a little V. Um, that little V actually supports the latex as you're calling. Um, and then as you can see, it's got a little bit of a lip to it. It's got yeah. just a little bit of an angle. And that's where that call will actually kick down in your mouth as it sits on top of your palate. Um, at different angles. Now, a lot of people have different locations they want to put that amp. Yep. Um, they can play it straight up or they can roll it forward towards the front of their teeth. And as it comes out of their palate, it'll actually keep changing angles. So as a caller, you really just want to find that location where you're comfortable and can make the best sounds.
Well, we're getting a lot of questions and asks for uh, you doing some talking with those calls. You mind doing <laughs> with the, the two demonstrations? I don't know if you got one of those, if that would be a thinner latex versus a thicker latex, but do you mind just kind of demonstrating the difference? Do you want, same, Dirk, same. do you have just your Maverick in front of you? I just have my Maverick. I'll let Dirk demonstrate the Maverick and then I'll go to a thinner reeded call just to kind of show. And that's the other thing people need to know is the thicker the reed, typically the deeper and richer tones you get. Yep. Um, but then we have to stretch them a little bit tighter to get to get that. So you'll kind of hear the differences in tones between like Dirk's Maverick and then um, what our green ample sound like. Perfect. Yeah, so the Maverick, it's got a really thick latex. So thick latex is stretched tight equals a lot more air pressure. You have to push harder with your internal diaphragm, diaphragm and yep. push out a little bit more airflow, right, to make it go. Um, I was kind of thought that kind of a call maybe would be for more aggressive type callers. Um, but we get a lot of new people that like them too. So you just never know on the lineup where where people's palate shape and the way they they breathe air out to make mm -hmm. the calls where it's going to fit. But uh, yeah, it's going to take a little more air pressure. You get excited like I do when you're calling. Um, I like it because I, I tend to get like extra excited and blow extra hard and I don't cut them out with the thicker latex and it gives you a little richer tone. So. <laughs> make cow calls bull calls mm -hmm. um, I, and i don't like to carry like three or four different styles of calls in my pouch every year i like to just have one that kind of does everything so and that's why i like the maverick yeah, yeah. Pretty yeah. Cool. <laughs> um and so this will be this is actually our green amp i yep. just i just built these like 20 minutes ago before the show started so I just taped with what I had up there. This is actually our green amp. It's going to have a thinner latex stretch a little bit looser. So you should naturally hear it's got a little bit higher note and then you'll get a little bit higher pitch on the bugles. Um, technically a smaller bull sound, but a lot of people can make the full range just like Dirk can make the full range with the Maverick. Um, most callers can take this and make the full range. said the biggest thing when we go out to build a call um, is that you can use that call for everything 100% of your calling your cows calves medium bulls large bulls um, but it's really just trying to find somewhere in that that lineup that, that you're you're the most confident in making all those calls now when you guys are picking your calls if it's a pressured area or a non-pressured area depending on whatever it could be I mean even another question I want to ask you guys too is about how does this apex predators like the wolves and the bears play a factor in, in your calling strategy I mean I you know, there's certain areas, even where I turkey hunt, that those turkeys are pretty quiet just because of the coyote population. So do you guys, with the pressure, do you use the same calls, whether it's in Washington, whether it's in Colorado, Montana, wherever you might be, or do you guys kind of kind of tailor that? Go ahead, Dirk. I, uh, I tend to use the same calls, whether I'm uh, hunting highly pressured areas and in, in, in roaded areas in Idaho or, you know, the wilderness in Colorado. Um, but I, I will say, um, depending on where I'm hunting, I kind of like listen and, and if I'm hearing other hunters during doing a certain thing, it, a lot of hunters 
kind of struggle with bugling, right? So their go-to is a cow call. And, and some guys live and die by a cow call, which a lot of bulls have died by the cow call too mm -hmm. in that same regard. But if you have lots and lots of guys out there beating the, beating the brush, blowing cow calls everywhere, I will kind of lay off the cow calls. I'll try to do some, I'll maybe I'll be do more bugles during my routines. Um, but it, it's all kind of, you know, I, I feel like if you sound better, the chances of, of fooling an elk in a, in a over in a heavily hunted area is more likely than if you bought an elk called the couple days before season and didn't put any, any practice to it and start calling, you know, mm -hmm. you can sound pretty terrible and call in a bull too, but yep. if you're in hunting highly pressured stuff, then I, it's not as likely. And then as far as like predators, like wolves, I, you know, hunted North Idaho a lot and it's, <laughs> it's the epicenter of wolves in Idaho. That's crazy. And, uh, what I haven't really changed the tactic of how I call the bulls and, and the kind of volume or the different calls I make per se. But what I have done differently it, compared to 20 years ago is I'm mobile. Now I'm very mobile. I don't just yeah. go set up a camp, a big wall tent and just hunt that five square mile area for a, a week. Mm -hmm. No, I, I may drive 25 miles this way one day. And the next day I might drive 25 miles the other direction, relocate, just to try to stay ahead of the game because wolves a lot of times will get into an area and if they don't spook the elk out, elk will get very quiet and they'll just, they'll hide themselves and not make a peep. Yep. They'll quit, they'll quit traveling. They'll stay very close to their food and water. They'll just kind of hunker down. So, um, when it get, when it, when I find situations like that, I, I'm out, I, I relocate, go to a different place. And a lot of times moving 25 miles, you're back into bugling bulls. So, very nice. Yeah, so very similar. Dirk kind of took my answer. We don't, I don't necessarily change my calling. Um, it usually, I, I try to get an answer. If, I, if I've been in an area for a couple of days and, and had good beginning action and all of a sudden they'd be quiet or the elk just seem to have moved, uh, I kind of pay attention and I'll move a ridge or two over because in the area I hunt in Idaho and the areas I hunt in Montana, if the wolves are in there, the elk don't just disappear. They may just bump out of a canyon or bump two canyons over. And so, as Dirk said, being mobile is our biggest um, advantage in wolf country. Is It's obvious. You've been in there two days in a row. You've had elk bugling every morning, every night. Now, all of a sudden, it's just void or it's dead. You know, if, if hunting pressure hasn't changed, um, we'll just, we're running. We're running ridges. We're just trying to find where these elk move to because elk are still elk. They still got to make sound. They'll still answer your bugles. Um, so, we'll just be really mobile. And then... Uh, Dirk and I got to hunt Colorado together a couple years ago and another apex predator also known as Doug Flutie also known as human buglers um, we were in an area where we located a real bull but then we also heard six people pop off and in that instance I think we still called but we were calling very quietly just so the bull could hear us and we could hear people chasing us and we were still chasing the real bull and so it was our ability to kind of not lead them on, even though the real bull didn't know to bugle quiet. We were trying to kind of keep our location a little bit. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I, I don't think it, it matters that much. Um, if you're in a highly pressured area, I sometimes just don't bugle as much or as loud because I don't want everybody to kind of drop in on me. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's that's kind of our strategy. We don't really change strategies, just more mobile and, and, and locations with, with wolves. Now, do you guys see it? Do you call differently to a satellite bull versus a herd bull? Ah, uh, sometimes, sometimes. Uh, I usually call to the disposition of the bull, and 
sometimes those satellite bolts think they're pretty big stuff, you know? Um, so I'll kind of call it the disposition of the bull. The bull sounds very timid. Um, even a big bull, if he sounds kind of timid, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to kind of start warming him up with timid calls of my own Mm -hmm. and then wait till things escalate far enough along to where maybe he's like, Hey, quit talking like that to me. And eventually if you can kind of warm him up a little bit, build some heat per se with them, then, uh, you can kind of start getting a little more aggressive, but, um, yeah, I, I just kind of call to the disposition of the elk. Yeah. So if I don't know what the bull is, like if I get an answer down in a canyon, a timbered canyon, I just go in thinking it's a herd bull. I'm going to use my herd bull tactics. And with that said, I've killed a whole bunch of smaller satellites. They're curious. They're still going to come into a call. Just like they come in and bother the herd bull all day, they're going to come bother me as this bull that's approaching. Uh, so I've, I've been able to kill herd bulls and satellite bulls alike using the same herd bull tactics. Now, if I've got, you know, if I've got glasses on and I spot a bull across the canyon and I can tell that we maybe have a group of smaller satellite bulls with no cows or a lone satellite bull, I will call differently to those I, rather than bugle because I would say my strategy 90% of the time is to include a bugle somewhere in my calling. I will go get the wind right set up on that bull and then just stick to a lot of cow calls, a lot of sexy cow calls. Um, we've been fortunate to call satellite bulls into like a burn where you can really monitor exactly how they react to every single cow call. Mm-hmm. And we've noticed that a lot of times the more we lay on the cow calls, the more you're actually speeding him up. He's not slowing down or having to think about his approach as much. You can almost turn his brain off. And, and so in that instance, when I know it's nothing but a satellite bull, um, we know he's coming in silent or may not bugle. We'll just lay heavy cow calls on him and try to kill that satellite bull. Very good. Now, is your da- the tactic change from pre-rut, rut, post-rut, and then even late season? Are you guys still I, calling late season? We we do. Um, that that bull, my my best memory. Um, my wife actually uh, killed that bull on October twenty seventh, and he was still rutting pretty hard. So um, that one, we were just a fly on the wall. But I don't want to sound too boring in that I'm just too prescriptive on my hunting. But I don't change a lot from preseason once October. August 25th, 28th gets here. Like my strategies are pretty much, and I haven't hunted a whole lot before August 25th. Oregon's one of the few seasons and then Utah, which I've not been able to draw a tag in, but not very many areas offer that early season. But usually by the time I'm hunting on September 1st, um, my tactics will work. We'll be able to locate bulls. We'll be able to get them to answer back or like Dirk said, turn the temperature up. And I don't necessarily want to say we start the rut, but we're able to get the rut kind of kicked off or get that bull to start acting ready. Uh, I will say early and late um, where those bigger bulls are maybe staying a little more distance from the herd. Uh, we may use a little bit more cow calling as he's, you know, maybe more apt to come in, but still I would say 90% of the time we're still locating with bugles and then moving in um, with some aggressive tactics, getting really close to those elk and, and trying to challenge them. Yeah. Now for the guys out there and the, the gals too, listening, tuning in here, if they don't have the confidence yet to call, now to set up, I mean, sit on a wallow, sit on a travel corridor, food source. I mean, what do you guys recommend? Is it, how long would you guys sit at a wallow? I guess would be one of the questions as well. A water source. I'll let yeah. your... okay. <laughs> so depending, you know, regionally, um, you know, wallows can be deadly. Um, North Idaho, uh, Mon- Montana, up in the, up in the green timber in the mountains, uh, Wyoming, a lot of times wallow sitting, uh, is not a real great idea just because there's waters everywhere. Now, if you're hunting an area though, that it's, it's dry, it's a hot year and there's just, there's no little creeks or little seeps around. If you do find some water that's, that's being active. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind sitting there, you know, half, half the day. Um, 
let's say you made your you know, from daylight till nine o'clock you, you made your hunt then and you didn't hear no bugles or whatever uh go sit down on the water you know a lot of times from from nine to to one or two o'clock those those bulls will come in and wallow you know they'll they'll get their their cows put away and then they'll come wallow mm-hmm. so um and then like i think the southwest i've never hunted the southwest jason can probably speak more of that but uh that that's a very deadly deadly uh way to 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 go after bulls yeah yeah so i was i've been able to hunt in mexico uh in 2016 and it's as Dirk had mentioned. I live in Southwest Washington, which may be the wettest place in the, on the earth. Um, so we have water everywhere. Every creek has, is, you know, all year long. It's always got water in it. There's creeks, lakes, ponds everywhere. Uh, I got to go to New Mexico, and it was a completely different world. And it was actually pretty awesome coming from a place that was so wet. Like these elk actually have to come to water, a, a dedicated water source every night and every morning which for me was crazy because I knew exactly where I was going to start my hunt every morning or every night mm-hmm. because those elk had no other choice, but to somehow come to that water. Um, and so it was, it was an awesome hunt because we would hunt water and then be able to kind of pick the bull we wanted to follow back to bed. That was the one disadvantage of hunting water where they were there at night. It wasn't necessarily a wallow sit because these elk were getting water once a day. They were never going to come back. These elk were traveling two or three miles back to bed. You were always started your day in that cat and mouse routine, which isn't isn't a great way to hunt elk either. You could never really get in front of them. So it was a kind of a it was kind of twofold. It was good and bad um, yeah. on being on water, but it was definitely fun having different herds come to one water source and then kind of having that rut fest every morning. What uh, was pretty cool. But to answer your question, how long I'll sit a wallow is about twenty three seconds until <laughs> I get bored and and uh, go crazy, and then I've got to go try to hunt elk down on foot. Yeah. I just, I don't have the patience to sit walls. I think it's very effective, especially in the, in the South. I just, I don't think I can do it. Yep. And what do you guys, what's your strategy when it gets super hot? I mean, if they have high temperatures in whatever state, whatever area, I mean, the, the elk can be the top third, depending on the mountain range, depending on the hills, or are they going to be down low in the shade? I mean, they still chasing hard. I mean, I don't know if uh, the deer transitions to the same style, uh, the elk style, you know, of the lockdown phase or, you know, even going into some of that heat, I mean, what they're doing. It really depends on where their food's at. So I hunted Idaho in 18 and this year was super dry fires all over and the food was all burnt up top. Normally that's where the elk are always at. And so just because of that year, they had no food, they bumped down to the water. And, and we actually decided kind of our, our motto on that is if we can't live up here because we had no water besides what we brought in on our back, the elk can't live up here. Um, so all their water was gone. We bumped down. Now next year people went there and the elk were back up high. So as cliche as it sounds, the elk are kind of where they're at. Um, we can be hunting the same mountain range in Montana, and you could have one herd of elk that's down in the very bottom of the creek bottom, 3,000 feet, and then you could have the same herd of elk up on the ridge top. So there's really no rhyme or reason, and, and that's one of my big big things when I show up to an area is don't – you have your, your areas that typically will always hold elk, you know, your, your meadows, your water, your, you know, your passes, your creek bottoms, but never ride off an area until you've kind of proofed that area um, and kind of proven that they're, the elk aren't there. Um, so we've killed bulls all the way from, you know, down in the creek bottoms all the way up to the ridge tops, and it's, it changes from year to year in the same area. So it's really every year I've kind of got to come, come at it with, with a, fresh, a fresh look and, and try to figure out where the, where the elk are at that year. Yeah, I have to agree with that. And uh, one thing I'll say is, um, let's see, it was uh, it was last year, 2019, I was hunting Wyoming, and it was 97 degrees. It was opening day, 97 degrees at, at noon, and it was just hot. And uh, 
we decided we're just going to sit down, shade up. If it's way too hot, it's way too hot for us to be hiking around here. I know there's bulls here, and there was a really nice north-facing slope across the canyon, big dark timber. I'm like, let's just wait here until things start cooling off. Wait till the shadows start going, getting uh, longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, that evening, about five, six o'clock, you know, you started things started cooling down. You started getting those thermals changing, all the the cooler air starting to come down. And uh, we heard our first bugle of the evening. And we went over there, and man, we almost got this big old bull. But uh, so yeah, sometimes I mean, hunting harder. That's one thing, but sometimes hunting smarter is not all that bad too. I mean, yep. if you're if you're just beating yourself to death on a ninety degree day, just trying to cover country, uh, a lot of times the elk are going to lay up and 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 maybe not even make a peep. So maybe you should save your energy and wait in the wings per se until they're ready to go, and then uh, get after it the last couple hours of the day. So with people not able to scout, what's your what would your recommendation be for a first timer? I think I think uh, a lot of your scouting should be done. You know, if you know you're going elk hunting, January one, you're 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 tearing apart Google Earth, uh, depending depending on what kind of you know uh, mapping application you got for your phone. Yep. Um, just familiarize yourself, tear apart the places you want to hunt, look for little trails, and then start formulating your plan and start having a plan A through Z. <laughs> so that way. You show up on opening day and you're like, I know, I know there's going to be elk here. Let's say there's a whole bunch of people. Let's say there's wolves. Let's say there's not an elk track in sight because you've mm-hmm. never been there. That's okay. Have go to plan B, go to plan C, and you just go through these plans. But but having a, a plan ahead of time and do all your e scouting ahead of time. That's 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 very key. If you can't do any boots on the ground scouting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I don't want to you know copy his answer, but yeah, a lot of e scouting. Um, early on in my hunting career, especially when I went out of state or to a new area, we'd put all of our eggs in that basket. We'd put our pack on 10 days of food and we were going to this spot because it looked awesome on Google Earth. We'll come to find out there were no elk there or something and we kind of had to ride that spot out. So just like Dirk said, um, we it doesn't sound as, as flashy or fancy and it's not the way all the hardcore guys backpack hunt, but I'm willing to go to a different spot every day, go in five miles, check the area out and come back out to ensure that I'm, you know, in the middle of a pile of elk so yep. that, um, you know, we have a chance at killing them because, you know, there's nothing worse than, than trying to hunt elk where they're not. So if you guys hear a bull scream, you call to him, he might re- respond back to you and then he just goes quiet. Do you still pursue that bull or are you guys just kind of doing the spinnerbait method of just trying to find something active out there? I'd prefer to hunt a bull that's, that's just firing back every single bugle. But a lot of times, you're kind of feeling the hunt out, right? If, if that morning you heard 30 different bulls bugle and then that one's kind of not responsive, you might not give him as much attention because you have so many other options. But yep. if I'm in an area that we're just hearing maybe a peep or two in the morning and then right before sundown, we're hearing a couple other bugles, so it's really not cranked on yet. I'm going to, as Dirk mentioned earlier, we kind of talk about turning that bull's thermostat up. You know, he might be at 60 degrees and you're trying to crank him up to 90 so we'll still do the same thing we would as if we were, we got a bull cranking off in the middle of the, the prime rut. We'll still get the wind right. I'll still try to close the distance. And one of the things I'd like to say, when we call elk in, it's calling elk the last little bit, and it's using your feet to close the majority of that distance. Um, I think a lot of people get hung up on trying to call that bull across the canyon, up the mountain, through the pass. And it just, it, it's we've did it before. It's worked, but it doesn't happen near as often as if I take my feet, get the wind right, 
get in very, very tight to that bull and then start my calling sequence. Yep. So even though that bull's kind of lackluster bugling, maybe answers me every five, 10 bugles, maybe just does his own thing. I'll be quiet. I won't make another peep. I'll kind of look at my mapping software and say, I think he's down here on this bench. This is where I'm going to find him. The other thing you have to remember is if you get the wind right, elk are pretty stinky critters. Um, they put off a lot of scent, especially if they're in a big herd. Yep. If you've got the wind right, you're going to start to smell these things before you get close as well as you mm -hmm. approach. And so use all that information. And then I will get close and, and maybe take his temperature real quick with a cow call. Did he hit that right back? If he does, I may stay with a cow call. If he doesn't, and I think I'm close enough, I may bugle at that point to try to get him to answer and then move closer. You know, so we may set up three, five, seven, ten times before we we're able to get to this bull and get him fired up. So we'll move a little bit closer, bugle, move a little bit closer. Um, you're just every situation is different. It's really tough to kind of explain. I might move three times, and then on that fourth time, like, hey, I'm not gonna call, I'm just gonna rake this time. See, it's kind of like bass fishing. You know, you show up to a lake or a body of water, you've never fished, like I'm gonna throw a plug, I'm gonna throw a spinner bait, I'm gonna throw a jig. You're just kind of throwing everything at this bowl and seeing what'll stick and then kind of sticking with that. Um, a lot of times, you know, we end up sticking with the bugle if he answers it, but we're just trying to, to take his temperature and what gets what gets his goat, you know, for that specific calling in that area without pushing him, you know, all over the mountain. Now, is there a different cadence that you're going to use for bugles to cow calls to calf calls? Or is it kind of just feeling out the situation, seeing what you're getting responses on? It's really filling it out. Uh, you know, I'll let Dirk answer. You know, he's got different methods that we use. He, you know, the slingshot, the yo-yo. There's all different kind of ideas on, you know, you kind of feel like you're an artist. You're, what scene are we painting? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times my go-to, at least the first thing I try, is I will move in close, say 100 to 150 yards of that bull, and I'll cow call, do kind of a sexy estrusy wine cow call. And what I'm wanting to tell that bull is you've got a cow on the edge of your herd that needs some attention. She's getting close. She's, she needs attention. And then I'll follow that up very, very quickly with the biggest, loudest, baddest um, challenge beagle I can. Basically yeah. saying, hey, this bull, whether it's a satellite bull, whether it's this new bull that just showed up, is here to take care of your cow. Um, a lot of times that elicits that, that, crazy, that crazy response from that bull. He'll either bugle or he'll come in, you know, slobbering, rut crazed, eyes rolled back in his head. And, and there's a lot of different ways to do this. There's a lot of different instruction, but that's really why I'm out there. I live for that, that moment where that bull, you know, tilts his head back, turns his head sideways to come under that pile of brush and, and scream in my face at 10 yards. Um, but there's a lot of other ways um, uh, to do it. So that's kind of my typical um, cadence. And then, you know, maybe Dirk can, can lead into some of the stuff we do where, you know, the bulls, the bull's starting to leave. Um, you know, sometimes just by not paying attention to that bull, the silent treatment, you know, some of those things will work. And so maybe dirt can get into some of those, I don't want to call them advanced strategies, but just some of the other pictures we're trying to paint for this bull while we're out there calling. Yeah. So like, like he said, shutting off, off your calls and quitting calling. Um, sometimes you're calling to a bull and he'll, he'll give you the silent treatment, right? Yep. Let's say you've been bugling for a little bit and then he just shuts up. A lot of times I'll just, I'll do the same thing. I'll shut up. Uh, and it's almost like it really starts getting their goat. You know, after about five minutes, they're like, ah, oh, where's that other bull? Mm -hmm. And finally they'll vocalize again, just to try to figure out where you're at. They, they think, you know, they get a little paranoid. I think that you're maybe slipping in on them. So, you know, there's that tactic. Um, let's say there's a bull that, that's, that has come in and, and he's, We've got that old old hang-up spot, you know, people talk about that. I think elk have been hanging up since before man tried to fling sticks at them, right? <laughs> you know, I mean, I think they hang up on themselves even. Yep. Um, but I think if they hang up at a certain point, if you have enough cover, don't be afraid to get a little aggressive, 
you know, and with your calls and your tactic of rip a big challenge scream and then move up, advance, you know, let's say he's hung up at 60 yards, but you can't see him and he can't see you move, cut the distance in half. And a lot of times that gives them that little faith that like, oh, that bull's coming to show himself finally. Yep. They're very visual. Um, elk really like to see each other and size each other up, right? So if he hears you coming, he's like, oh, here he comes. A lot of times they'll come out of their little hidey hole just to take a look at you. And a lot of times it's broadside. I've had it happen a lot where it's, it's not that straight on dreaded frontal shot everybody's yep. worried about. It's, it's usually a lot of times it's a broadside shot. That's pretty cool. Now, do you guys call it a herd bull? Or I shouldn't say this. Does a herd bull make a different bugle than a satellite bull? Yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard some pretty wimpy herd bulls, and I've heard some pretty badass uh, satellite bulls. That, yeah. that sounded like they were just, wow, that's got to be a big one. And you call him in, and he's just a little five-point. <laughs> so, yeah. um, But I will say there's some bulls that have that, that tone they don't even have a high note to their bugle it's a just a just a low guttural groan nine times nine times out of ten they're gonna be a pretty nice bull you know a mature bull you know it yeah. may not be like a 350 or a 400 inch bull but he'll be a darn nice and darn nice bull what's yeah. the chuckle at the end of a, a bugle what's that signify for the language <laughs> I don't know, man. There's a lot of guys that, you know, Chris Rowe or the, the elk nut could probably tell you exactly what it meant. But uh, I've been I've been messing with this a lot over the years. I experience every time I call elk, it's an experiment. And uh, some guys will say, oh, well, he's talking to his cows by chuckling or he's saying this or that. But, man, I have I have yet to see something that consistently. Says one way or another, yep. I, yep. my personal opinion is, um, is they some chuckle all the time just cause that's how they do it. And some don't do it much. And I, I don't know. I think it's important yeah. to do it. I, I live in Southwest Washington. I don't know how much people know about Roosevelt's versus Rockies and Roosevelt elk are known to chuckle or grunt a lot more than Rockies. And it's sometimes we have bulls that don't even, you know, do the high note bugle, the typical high note. They just, they're all chuckles or grunts. And uh, being the, the nerd that I am, kind of a student of the game a lot, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't have any books or, or mm -hmm. teachings on how to do this. So I would just go out between our archery and muzzleloader season and just sit and watch elk. And, you know, everybody asked me what the chuckle is. And, and some of these guys, as, as Dirk mentioned, claim to, and I don't mean to disclaim it either. They say that it means this. But I've watched a bull chuckle at other bulls. I've watched bulls chuckle to round up his cows. I've watched bulls chuckle out in the middle of a clear cut all by themselves. And to me, I'm like, well, if this means something, what the heck's it mean at that time? You know, he didn't have any cows around or he's over there chuckling, chasing the, you know, he's, he's basically right at the heels of a smaller bull chuckling to get them away from his cows. And so they're, they're just not enough. Um, I don't want to say evidence, but just, I, I can't, I don't know if it's just a sound that Roosevelt bulls make at, at different times um, that, that kind of leads me to not a real clear conclusion on what it means. For me personally, and this could be completely wrong, but I don't think there's a right or wrong answer necessarily in elk calling. I use chuckles and grunts to add additional aggression um, to my calling. I feel that when that bull's really fired up and he grunts or chuckles on it, it's really kind of that the exclamation point on the end of his bugle. And that's kind of how I treat it. Um, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. Yep. And so is that kind of a strategy to pull those herd bulls off the cows to you? Yeah. I usually start with grunts. And then uh, you hear mimicry a lot 
I tend to, yep. to typically always call exactly what the bull I'm trying to call in sounds like. So if he, he does a growly, a growly low note bugle with seven grunts, I'm going to try to copy that. And I'm going to try to always walk on top of him. So that's mm-hmm. kind of my strategy. If the bull is just a high pitched screamer, then that's what I'm going to kind of do. Um, and so that's really, you know, if he grunts, I'll grunt. If he chuckles, I'll chuckle. And, and I'll just really try to match exactly what he's doing, um, up the intensity a little bit. And then one thing I've found out, and it's kind of like your kids imitating you or when you were younger, somebody imitating you. And by the time you get done like seven lines in and they're still copying you, you're kind of just like ready to throw something at them. Um, that's what I kind of feel like you're, you're copying them to a T and then you're always not letting them finish. Um, so that's kind of a, a, a turn that thermostat up yeah. type of a strategy. Call right over top of them. Yeah. Um, how, I'm sure you guys have had cow tags in the past during that, that spring or not, sorry, not spring, but the early season hunting. Do you guys, what, what are you guys focusing on to get those cows killed? Man, uh, I, it, it's funny. I've never really had a, a, a cow tag per se. Um, a lot of times I've hunted areas where it's a, any elk tag, type tag, but usually calling calling elk in the style I call, I do not have a, a lot of cows coming to, to me. So, um, yeah, I, I, I couldn't really speak to that real good. I've, I've never had a lot of luck calling cows other than, you know, maybe like a lost calf call or something, yep. you know, to get their, their, you know, be to get to, to pique their interest and be like, Hmm, is there a little calf over there? I better go see what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I'll do that. But, uh, what about you Phelps? And so we, growing up, all of our tags uh, here were either sex elk tags. So you always had the ability to kill a cow. And, and early on, I was willing to, to, to shoot whatever came in and fill the freezer. Oh, yeah. I never had an opportunity ever to kill a cow, maybe once or twice, but there was a herd bull right behind him or a bull coming with him. And so I was, you know, got greedy or just waited it out and killed the bull. Um, but with that, I, I've got some strategies on, on the way I would approach it. So you would still want to bugle and locate bulls just like you would you're hunting a bull because I, you know, inevitably in September, there's going to be cows with those bulls that are bugling or close by. Mm -hmm. So that's going to kind of get me started in the game. As far as calling cows in, I would, my strategy, if I was out there specifically targeting a cow would be to locate that bull and then just move in without calling at all. Um, In my opinion, trying to kill a cow, there's nothing that really draws her in besides maybe curiosity. And I think that you're more likely to scare that herd off or put them on alert before you're going to call that cow in now you may call that bull in but if you've only got a cow tag some of these states that offer a and b tags you know spike versus bulls or bulls and cows whatever it may be whatever you're after i would be a little less likely to call once i did get in close um you know do a real slow approach um you know sit a little bit more which i'm not good at and and just be a little bit more patient um Mm -hmm. get on the edge of that herd uh and wait for things to develop get in the path yeah all right, so we're running out of time. Can't believe it's already been this long already, but a couple last questions here. Um, what's the best tip you would give to a first-time elk hunter? And then second part of that question would be, in your suggestions or your guys' opinions, what's the best state for someone to go to as a beginner to get on some elk? Maybe not the 350s, 400s, but to get some opportunities. Go ahead, Derek. I'll go. Uh, so I think probably the 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 best advice is kind of multifaceted. Yep. So um, don't set your sights too high. I have known guys, good friends in the past that that maybe were shooting a stick bow, you know, primitive primitive archery tackle, and 
and uh, they're like, yeah, I really want to shoot this big six point bull. And, and uh, have you ever killed an elk before? Well, no. So I always kind of say, all right, set yourself up with success. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe don't start out with a stick bow, start out with a, a compound with sights and stuff. You're put, you're stacking the odds in your favor. Yep. Um, you're eliminating chances of failure. Okay. Six point bull. That'd be awesome. I think we all want one, but let's, let's face it. If you haven't killed a bunch of elk, focus on just getting any legal elk, you know, any of them, it's, it's, it's a win. It's a win. 100%. If you shoot a, a, a young cow, that, great. You've got the best protein. It's probably going to be taste delicious. Oh yeah. Um, and you, you learn, you learn what happens during the process of taking an animal's life. Okay. Um, and then, um, set yourself up for success by um, not giving up. Some guys will get, I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, I've known a lot of people who have all, you know, all, they get all their plans made and everything. And, and that's part of the fun of hunting. I think elk hunting is making your plans and just getting there. But once they get there, it, all that excitement kind of starts wearing off when they mm-hmm. run reality kind of sets in and you have a few days, it's pretty slow and maybe you're not into elk. Uh, some guys after two or three days of, of getting their butt kicked will say, you know what? I'm going home. Yep. Um, but you can't kill a elk from home. Right. So you just have to dig deep. You know, you start missing your family and stuff. I understand that I do too, but you have to dig deep and say, okay, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to see this through mm-hmm. success can happen at the very end of the last minute of shooting light on the last day i've had it happen so many times you have to believe in it and just don't give up that's that's my advice what about state thank you that was great great feedback guys what state would you guys pick and then we got to go to the price package everybody's waiting i'd say any state that you can get an elk tag for it's tough it's getting tougher all the time over the counter easy to get elk tags that's that's the state i'd recommend so uh, my advice, and, and mine's more technical, is I think everybody's good enough to, to call a bull in or get something to answer. On a, on a elk hunt, there's nothing cooler than hearing your call get responded to by a real elk. Um, try everything you can, and it's hard for me to be an elk call manufacturer and say call a little bit less. But in this certain situation, while you're trying to get set up and move in, don't call your way into a bull. When you get to 300 yards, don't call. When you get to 200 yards, don't call. Um, what that is doing is giving that bull a chance to get away from you, um, to, to just avoid the conflict. He will take his cows and he'll play this cat and mouse game all day long until he wins or he gets the wind right. And then he's going to bust, you know, three canyons over. So try to get the wind right, try to get in close and try not to make another peep if possible. Uh, will and, and it, it's not, it's not critical. It is a critical point because if you want to kill that boy, you've got to get close to him. So um, really try as a new hunter to avoid calling him across the canyon, calling him to your location or calling your way into his location. Be quiet, be a fly on the wall, um, use some woodsmanship to be quiet, get in close and then kind of surprise him um, with your calling setup. It would be my recommendation. And then um, I don't know how many people we have from Colorado on this. Um, Colorado, Dirk kind of took the easy way out uh, and <laughs> said any out. take to get a state in. Colorado has just got so many dang elk in it. But the one downside to Colorado is it's the first state that everybody from back east or south gets to. So why they have more elk than any other state by double, they have got 10 times as many hunters per any other state, I think, um, from what I've experienced hunting Colorado. 
And so, I mean, that's good. You've only got a few states with over-the-counter opportunities, such as, you know, Idaho, which now is no longer available. They, they sell out quick. You've got Oregon. I, Washington has all the over-the-counter over tags you would want, but I would caution you before you come to Washington or elk hunting isn't that great. Uh, so that's kind of, that's kind of my, my states that I would hunt. And then, you know, just to piggyback on dirt, um, find a great hunting partner that doesn't want to give up, that won't let you give up and you won't let them give up because mm -hmm. mental toughness, no matter how much you know about elk, no matter how many questions you ask us, that's something that we can't teach you through a seminar. That's something that can't be bought. It, it, it's not like a piece of gear. You have to have it deep in your, you know, somewhere up there mentally, you've had to push through tough situations before and be able to, to stay there for the long haul. Um, and, and hunt hard every day when, you know, even when things are, are not looking up. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys. So what we're going to do now, I'm waiting for the a magic envelope from Kirsten. This is magic red envelope. And uh, we got the prize package tonight. Thank you. We've got a Matthews VXR, 31.5 inch bow and quiver. We got Phelps game call package and a $500 gift card to Shields for some Sika gear. So if I get the drum roll, please. Our winner tonight of this package of night number three is Brandon W. from Hesperus, Colorado. I am not sure if I pronounced your last name right, but mine's Flyshacker, so you can't make fun of me either. All right. So... Good job, Woo. Jason Dirk. We really appreciate you guys' time. Um, yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. There's ten thousand other questions coming through, so we might be uh, pinging you. Mike Anderson from our social media team might be bugging you here in a little bit uh, to help with some of those advanced questions for sure. But thank you so much for joining. Uh, the knowledge you guys gave, I'm sure you guys gave some nuggets that hopefully people picked up on. Make sure you guys are going on social media and following so uh, Shields Outdoors on Facebook to stay updated with everything. And don't forget about going to the Shields and doing your shopping for the Phelps calls if you get, did not win the amazing prize package tonight. With that, we appreciate everybody. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.